Welcome to the Notes from Michael White podcast, episode 13. The return of the Jedi, I guess. I don't know. We'll call it whatever we want. Lucky number 13, Josh? Yeah, lucky uh, number 13, for sure. I'm Peter Kieran. Alongside me, I've got Josh Wagman. And we are going to discuss this week's uh, tech notes from the newsletter from uh, Michael White. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to start it's us good. off, Josh, about some of the things that happened today, perhaps? Yeah, it's kind of been a, a big week for tech. A couple of big announcements. And um, obviously, today being the 20th, we had the Apple event that uh, they were calling it Spring Loaded um, that we've been anticipating for a little while now. And so really, for me, uh, the, there's the uh, kind of two or three big takeaways from this. Um, I've never really been a big iMac guy, um, but what I did find is the massive change to form factor is actually quite appealing. Um, the way they're, they're making better use of screen real estate for the size of the device and trying to really create a minimal, minimalist but high performance machine by adding M1. Uh, pretty cool how they kind of bring that all together and, and almost make it look like a giant iPad Pro at this point. You know, I was about to say that exact thing. That they've really taken the design cue from when I was looking at my iPad Pro on my desk and I'm going, hey, that looks like, if you gave it a chin, that could be a mini iMac, right? So uh, it, uh, the colors looked actually kind of nice too. Uh, my, my daughter was particularly enthralled with the teal one, although she says, can I get my laptop that color? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> maybe that will be the next version. The, the MacBook Airs, when they refresh everything, they'll put all the fancy uh, Ma uh, iMac colors onto those. But uh, it was a, I, I think there was a, a lot of depth to the announcement. One of my, uh, well, one of the ones that, you know, I didn't know I wanted a new iPad Pro until today, and, and now I want one. And I, I don't really know why I want one other than the fact that it's got an M1 in it. And maybe they'll run Big Sur on it someday. <laughs> um, that would be, you know, I think my ideal would be an iPad Pro, you know, that's that 11-inch form factor with a touchscreen that I can attach a keyboard to and I can run Mac apps, you know, as I need to. But I think that would be ideal. We didn't quite get there, but... Uh, it certainly is exciting, and the mini LED on it looks uh, tremendous. So, lots of uh, lots of neat stuff happening today from the Apple uh, standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And we, I've been a iPad iPad Pro user since they um, since they released it. I bought the first, I think it was 11 inch or 10 inch model, and then went into the 12 nines as soon as they were available. And I've always been buy a generation, skip a generation. So, as luck would have it. I skipped the latest generation previous to the announcement. So I am due for an upgrade. And for me, this is, we've heard rumors for a few years of Mac starting to blur the lines between where the pro series of tablets end and where the uh, MacBooks begin. And I think this is kind of one of the last iterations before we see more of that crosstalk that you were hoping to see. Um, where you can potentially leverage the uh, the desktop style applications on the uh, on the iPad Pro interface. But one thing you pointed out to me actually uh, before we started the show is the fact that towards the top end of the new iPad Pros, the significant amount of 
of, of RAM you can get in these form factors now. And to me, what that shows with the with all of the graphics um, capabilities within the M1 framework, with all of the compute characteristics that you get there, really all of the uh, the lines have basically been blown away between the two platforms. Um, obviously, you've got a different user interface on on iPad OS, but I think under the hood, it's it's a lot more similar, um, really almost parallel. And I think the capabilities on those machines, you're going to start seeing people with MacBooks maybe forego them for the uh, usability and the portability of the iPad Pro. Absolutely, and and like you, I, I'm in that uh, <laughs> skip a generation, uh, and you know I think I've got a third generation iPad Pro 11, and you know it certainly piqued my interest having you know a minimum of eight gig of RAM and a max of 16. You know, one of the things is you know once you start running some of the graphics heavy uh, capabilities that that I do, I do a lot of photo editing, and I notice you know <laughs> I do notice actually I consume a lot of RAM. And so that that's a consideration for me. So I think that was one of the things that you know, I, when I when when I had expectations that they're going to announce a new iPad, I was like, yeah, I've already got one and it's still working and all the rest of it. And I really wasn't overly um, concerned about that aspect of the announcements. And and lo and behold, as soon as I watched it, I was like, hmm, maybe I do want one. <laughs> In fact, I do want one. You know, but do I need it? I don't know if I quite need it yet, but uh, most definitely, it's uh, it's definitely attractive. Maybe yeah, and be part one of the of my, well, my well wellness bonus from VMware, so that would be good too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and one of the things to note about the memory too is that even if you are editing that kind of the the photo information or the photo uh, you know, photos or or video, what we've seen in the past with especially with Intel boxes requiring a significant amount of memory to be able to process that well. A lot of testing in, in early M1 applications, we're finding that 16 gigs of that high bandwidth memory on the M1 uh, platform is going a lot further than maybe even 32 gigs of RAM in a traditional Intel platform. So the processing capability of the iPad Pro that we saw announced today is is leaps and bounds ahead of ever anything you've really seen in a tablet aside from maybe the odd Intel workstation tablet, which I I'm willing to bet now those benchmarks would be a hell of a lot closer than they would have been six months ago. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, and, you know, I just actually looked up my iPad version uh, and it only has four gig of Ram. So, you know, even doubling that is going to help me out, but you know, quadrupling that obviously is would make me even happier. So. And the fact that you can, and we were talking again about this off uh, before the show started is, I was looking for a while at using iPad Pro as basically a, a productivity device, maybe as a, as a key work uh, device. But requiring a secondary monitor of full resolution was kind of a, a drawback and a holdup. I don't see that as being the holdup anymore with that uh, Thunderbolt capability within the USB-C port, being able to have that full 40 gig bandwidth. And as they mentioned today, native resolution on a 6K monitor. So that means you can have that full size external monitor and you're not relying on the application specific implementation of mirroring to use the full resolution of that monitor. 
Absolutely. And I think that's one of the drawbacks that I've seen just with my iPad is I do use it every day for work. I use it as a, as a whiteboard substitute on Zoom. I, I do, you know, and in fact, when, I'm, when I was out on the road a lot, it, it was my primary um, work vehicle, right? So, you know, I, I would pull a laptop out, laptop out if I needed specific things, like maybe I needed to draw a diagram or, or needed a PowerPoint presentation that I needed to deliver, but it, I've even delivered PowerPoint presentations off my iPad. So uh, by all means, I think it's, uh, it's one of those things that it becomes more and more useful every generation. And, uh, you know, I use it for a lot of different things, you know, from entertainment and, you know, it's a great multimedia com- consumption device, but it, but it also has, you know, uh, I'll, I'll bet my work folder gets more usage than anything else on, on, on my iPad these days. So. Yeah. And, and like, I mean, then you look at the investment they made in the liquid led screen, uh, which is obviously a, a massive contrast improvement. Well, the, the the mini LED uh, that that they put into these new ones, and especially on the twelve point nine inch one with the, uh, it, it has more dimming zones than my TV, right? I mean, it has twenty five hundred dimming zones. I mean, that's ridiculous. So, I mean, a million to one contrast ratio is is, is into that OLED range with a lot less power. So, I think that's a that's tremendously exciting, and you know that might tip me towards a 12.9, even though I don't really need the big form factor, even though I'd probably like it. Right. So uh, and that's what drove you... me to the first one was the HDR screen uh, and the 120 Hertz uh, refresh rate like, that made such a significant difference at the time that, um, and obviously now you get the benefit of all the camera technology we were talking about with the uh with the iphone 12s as well so it, it kind of crosses that line and and even takes that forward facing camera to another level uh, with the 12 megapixel and and uh, a lot more capability with that forward facing I'll, I'll call it a meeting camera so if yeah. you're on teams or zoom or something along those lines it, and, they, they've and done he- a lot and the existing cameras are no slouch, but uh, by all means, I see a lot of my colleagues who are running, you know, Logitech, uh, you know, uh, 1080p or 4K webcams. And you do notice the difference. And in fact, on my MacBook Pro, I've started to use my DSLR as a as a meeting cam just because it it, it looks better, right? And since we're doing so many virtual meetings, you know, why not make it look better? So, absolutely. And the one other thing I really found kind of cool, especially with the camera technology. Someone for that's doing um, like a FaceTime or a Zoom meeting or even podcasting or something along those lines is the ultra wide capability, but implemented to kind of keep you in the center of the frame. Uh, the ability of the camera to kind of follow you without actually following you. It's pretty cool. Exactly. And I think that plays right into that neural engine that they've got. They, they can do so much um, with the, the video engine now and with the photo processing that, that it, 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 you know, that, that M1 chip, but also, you know, the, even the latest chips in the iPhones can do a lot. And LIDAR will help in low light focusing and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, I, I can just see a ton of AR applications for the LIDAR as well. One of the interesting things I found on my iPhone, I was out shooting uh, photos out in the mountains on the weekend in a big Aurora storm. And lo and behold, I could actually get a decent Aurora f- picture on my iPhone. 
which I've never been able to do before. You know, night photography with your phone is limited to, you know, pretty close subject with some light. It was pretty much pitch dark with just the aurora in the background. And I was able to actually get usable, <laughs> usable photos. It doesn't rival my DSLR because the sensors, you know, the size of a fingernail versus, you know, an inch, an inch on my big DSLR camera, but it, it certainly did the trick just to get a composition. So I think that's, really some of the interesting things that you can do with the cameras these days are all tied to that neural neural imaging processing that they, they have in the in the new you know m chips from apple so absolutely and then obviously they've expanded uh find my um so we we saw the air tags which is probably the worst kept secret from this announcement um they look pretty accurate to what had been seen in the wild already uh so the ability to to tag really anything you own and, and be able to find it. But one of the cool things I found is the fact that they're opening up the platform to other providers. Um, being able to provide the framework to other companies to integrate with Find My. So now your finding capabilities, your location capabilities are going to be able to span across product lines, which is pretty cool. And, and I think nice to be able to uh, consolidate that all in one area. Yeah, and you know, Apple is always all about the user experience. And you know, I, I've I've had Tile before, and you know, I, quite frankly, I was a little disillusioned with the battery life on my Tile. So you know, hopefully, the AirTags can have a little bit of a different uh, battery capabilities wrapped around that. And the the price is pretty much similar to what I was going to pay for a, a new Tile anyway. So I've been kind of holding off to throw something new in my wallet to keep track of where my wallet is. And, hopefully uh, this will be it so yeah yeah anything else that you caught your attention from there i think uh, uh, one of the well one of the things that i saw that probably didn't you know pique a lot of people's interest but was putting touch id on the on the keyboard you know on the magic keyboard for the imac and uh i think that's a a most definite uh, a nice nicety because even when I type on my home office, I have my laptop and I have to reach up, you know, across my keyboard to hit the touch ID to log into stuff or to, you know, authenticate my passwords or, or whatever. It'll be nice to have it right on the keyboard. So. Agreed. Agreed. There's always the, uh, as, as we talked about it before, the Barney iPhone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That was not rehearsed, by the way. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, does it swell up like the girl from, uh, or the, the boy from uh, um, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? <laughs> and explode. So, I'm pretty boring when it comes to my tech. I usually buy uh, like dark gray or black on black or, or something like that. So um, not a big deal for myself. And I felt a little neglected by the brightness of maybe the the IMAX being rainbow colors and extremely bright, but um, could potentially be. I, seen, but. Yeah, I, I'd like to see them in in person before I make any judgments on the colors. But I, you know, I, it, Apple's done the colors before with the IMAX. In fact, I think the first ones was Bondi blue, and you know they've kind of gone back to that rainbow lollipop color scheme on it which is fine and uh, i think there'll be a market and you know if you want plain jane you can still get the silver <laughs> or the dark blue actually it didn't look too bad either so yeah i think there'll be you know something for everybody and quite frankly if i was to get an imac it would sit on my desk and the color would face the wall anyway so i don't really care <laughs> but yeah exactly uh, you know 
fundamentally if it's the if it's got the right stuff inside it's all about what's on the screen and not what the color is for me but uh, that's uh, i'm i may be boring that way because i'm old <laughs> oh no that's all right but uh, the, uh you can be sure that uh april 30th when ordering opens for the uh the devices in canada um i'll, I'll be lined up to to get that ipad pro order in you you betcha, and you're, you're you're probably going to get the one terabyte model, so you can get the 16 gigs of RAM too. So yeah. now that new I know job, that, gotta get, yes. you, you got to get a new job. You got to get a new toy, right? So yeah, exactly. And today is officially my last day at Veeam, so I'm no longer employed. I think they probably cut off my account by now. But uh, just wanted to say a, a big thank you to everyone at Veeam again, and uh, it's been a been a pretty cool for an almost a half years. You know, I looking back, I, I remember when you got hired by Veeam, we, we sat on a patio and chatted about, you know, SE stuff and all the rest of that. And I think we're at Original Joe's and here in Calgary, uh, down on Kensington. And uh, and it, it seemed like it was yesterday. So, uh, and I can't believe I've been at VMware for almost six years. I'm coming up on my anniversary next month. So, yeah, yeah well, time, time definitely flies. And, uh, you know, when you're with a good company like Veeam or with VMware or, or lots of any other good companies out there time really flies when you're when you are having fun and when you're having fun what you do so yeah absolutely. Well, let's let's move on from the apple stuff seeing as that was the big news of the day we can uh maybe uh talk about stuff that was in um michael white's newsletter uh do you want to start us off so yeah one of the things i took out of the uh, newsletter this week um was the fact that uh, going back to the Veeam days, uh, it's been a long time, but uh, the Veeam hardened repository passes independent compliance assessment. So basically what that means, we've discussed it a few times on the podcast about how adding security to your backup data is critical uh, from a recovery standpoint when you're talking malware, ransomware, or any situation where someone uh, with less than pleasant um, outcomes in mind for your data is involved with trying to make sure you can't recover. Well, having that um, secure repository like Linux hardened is extremely um, important, but there's also certain certifications that pertain to worm storage. So write once, read many storage. And so the, the gist of this article is that Veeam has been certified by uh, um, through a compliance assessment to be SEC 17A-4F and FINRA 4511C and CFTC 1.31C and D uh, compliant, which basically means we can be used or Veeam can be used in, in financial institutions uh, to secure data. So the most critical of data is has been basically approved to be written down in a worm fashion on the uh, hardened repo. That was a lot of letters and numbers, but uh, I think the, the 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 long and the short of it is it's uh, it's secure enough that banks trust it. So why shouldn't you? <laughs> right. I think that that that's what usually it boils down to when people look at any of those. 
financial, you know, uh, certifications, you know, or NERC compliance or any of those sorts of compliance methodologies. If, if you're supportive of those, you know, for the average, um, for the average industry is probably more than good enough. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so just highlighting the fact that it, it has been recognized, it has been tested and proven out uh, for that implementation scenario just makes it that much more um, of, a, of an appealing solution for end users in, in the Veeam world. Excellent. One of the other uh, big news of, of the last week really was uh, the VMware Dell uh, spinoff news. And I think that's uh, a huge news for those of us you know, who are employed by either Dell or VMware. But I think anyone who uh, uses VMware or follows VMware at all or, or virtualization knows that this is going to be a huge deal. Um, VMware has been and still is an independent company from Dell, but Dell did have uh, you know, a significant ownership stake that they're now spinning off, likely in uh, four, four Fourth quarter of this year, and basically that's caused a big overhang in you know what I would call the stock valuation more than anything else. So essentially, Dell has basically taken the stock valuation for themselves rather than having VMware have that their own stock value valuation. So there's always been you know kind of an overhang to the stock in terms of of you know monetary. Now I'm no stock expert or financial expert. I will preface that, uh, and I'm not getting any financial advice whatsoever. But uh, I think it will uh, definitely enhance uh, the value of VMware in the marketplace for sure with the spinoff, and uh, I think it will provide value back to Dell for their investment. So I think it's a win-win situation for both of them. Uh, there is a, a, an agreement between the two companies to uh, continue their strategic partnership. So, you know, uh, the fact that we're uh, doing a lot of engineering co-efforts alongside, uh, you know, VxRail, for example. And uh, one of the other things is uh, that a lot of people don't know on the carbon black side, we have a big initiative with uh, Dell uh, to sell their corporate uh, laptops and desktops with our software stack for security. So, you know, those will continue. And I think, uh, you know, that will allow us to set our own direction without having kind of the overlord of Dell breathing down our necks, telling us what our vision or, or our direction might be, you know, uh, you know, strongly influenced by. So it should be entertaining to see how that goes. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, and where I think this actually takes VMware industry-wide as well is back into a situation where it can be seen as more uh, platform independent, I think yeah. would be proper terminology, because the one thing when you're looking yeah. at competitive hardware manufacturers, um, sorry, I cut you off if you... No, 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 go, go right ahead. You're kind of heading right down the same direction. So, yeah. So when you're talking about competing hardware manufacturers, you've obviously got Dell who's done uh, outstanding work in, in server development. And you've got also got your HP platforms. You've got Lenovo, Cisco, but at some point it becomes hard to feed more funding to your competitor, even though it might be just a sub part of the platform like it would be with VMware. So all of a sudden, co-development and uh, partnerships with the other hardware vendors and maybe cloud providers as a result might be a little harder to facilitate. Um, I think this opens up kind of more of a, a, a hardware agnostic 
where where VMware came from, right? Like that hardware agnostic stance where it's just, here's the virtualization platform, here's the software design data center, here's the software defined cloud data center. And it doesn't matter, you won't be feeding your competitor maybe it is directly <laughs> uh, funding, but... Um, Exactly. And I think that, that, that that'll be one of the biggest things from a VMware perspective is the partner ecosystem has always been a big part of why VMware is successful. And when Dell purchased EMC and assumed that ownership that EMC had, EMC didn't make servers. So it really wasn't a huge deal. There was some storage you know, capabilities, but really VMware was able to keep you know, the hands out of the cookie jar from the storage capability and offer the same API to everybody. And and I think that's where we'll get back to, you know, is kind of an even playing field for all the partners. We may have strategic partnerships, uh, you know, with, with certain vendors. And, you know, at, at the moment we have one with Dell and we'll continue to have one with Dell. I don't imagine that's going to change very much, but it, it opens up the opportunity for us to have a strategic partnership with other, other players in the marketplace, whether they're, you know, cloud players or, or hardware vendors or software vendors, all of those are now going to be, I think, a little easier for us to negotiate without having to worry about the fact that, oh, you guys are owned by Dell. You know, we can't do a partnership with you because we have a big partnership with HP, right? So I think it'll open up doors for us to expand and unlock more value. Yeah, and that's exactly kind of my thoughts on that as well. So, um, and, and quite frankly, we won't pass profits back up the food chain into the Dell ecosystem either. So there you go. <laughs> so more reinvestment. That's excellent. Exactly. All right, so uh, let's see. Next up on the newsletter that I had was, um, there was some interesting uh, news wrapped around all kinds of vSAN update two stuff. Uh, you know, capacity monitoring advancements, extra network me uh, metrics, uh, storage policy rules with tag placements, uh, and uh, the RAID 5, 6 erasure coding enhancements in, in U2. So I highly recommend, I'm a vSAN guy at heart. I highly recommend reading, uh, Fletch's article, particularly about erasure coding enhancements. If you're running RAID 5 or RAID 6 in your vSAN environment, I, I highly recommend getting these vSAN 7U2 as soon as possible. Uh, performance is in, increases and a whole bunch of other things as well. So, you know, uh, highly recommend reading some of those articles that are in there. And then, you know, the API, you know, uh, API calls from vCenter, uh, you know, is a great thing. Uh, there's an article in here that says, you know, hey, some APIs, API calls are failing. Uh, it, it's an issue, but it tells you how to fix it. But uh, if you haven't played around with the, the API Explorer in vCenter and vSAN in particular, I highly recommend it. It gives you a lot of, uh, you know, automation capabilities or, or opportunities inside of there as well. Excellent. What do you have? What do you have on the uh, doc, docket here from our good friends, uh, good friend Michael White? So uh, a couple of updates recently um, to RV Tools, and so RV Tools is something that at Veeam we leveraged extensively for uh, sizing information. So uh, definitely enjoy seeing the updates for that, and and basically uh, bringing everything in line with uh, the new versions of vSphere. Um, looks like there's a bug fix in the, uh, the absolute latest uh, version of it, but 
what I find RV tools extremely valuable for is just pulling data very quickly from virtual environments, like one or more clusters and aggregating that into a centralized location. Uh, fantastic information for offline documentation and good stuff like that. Exactly. I mean, if you want to, uh, if you want to find out what your inventory looks like, what your virtualization, you know, plant looks like, it's the go-to tool. It has been forever. And I think with uh, 4.1 and above, it's really uh, given a, a uh, uh, a great overview of, of more and more stuff under the hood that you can pull, right? So, you know, you can see NIC labels, you can see IP column splits with IP4 and IP6. You can see a whole bunch of new columns for vSAN vault domains, uh, total number of VMs on a host. All these sorts of things now are going to be tabulated inside of that report that RV Tools kicks out. Uh, I use it um, in my home lab, but I also use it uh, with customers all the time to get an idea of what's running in their environment so that as we scope out new solutions, we have a very good and succinct view into what's going on inside the environment and what we need to uh, plan for, right? It eliminates what I call the 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 assumptions that, that, uh, <laughs> that you make sometimes when you hear that, oh, I've got, you know, 45 hosts in my environment. Oh, well, I, you know, in the back of my head, I do my cocktail napkin, you have 3,000 VMs. Well, actually, they have 450, right? So, you know, RV tools will definitely give you some of that uh, knowledge that you need to, to draw out solutions as a pre-sales engineer, but also if it's your own personal environment uh, or the one that you're managing, great tool to be using to gather information about uh, what's going on inside the environment. Absolutely. So one of the uh, one of the last things I pulled out of uh, Michael's newsletter this week wasn't even necessarily all that technical um, per se, but the reason I pulled this out is because I read an article kind of early on in the development of COVID vaccines, and it talked about the different methodologies for creating uh, vaccines and getting them to market. And the fact that traditionally almost 100% of vaccines have been uh, relying on creating uh, Kind of a dead version or a, a, a like a, a harmless version of a particular virus or injection to create a pattern within your own immune system to be able to fight that virus. But how now uh, newer vaccines, uh, these companies have been finally getting approval to use mRNA vaccines, which basically rely more on genetic blueprints of cells and, and the genetic makeup of a, of a body uh, to create um, the resistance to different things. And this opens the door to a millions and millions of possibilities, really, because of the fact that it doesn't necessarily just limit itself to what you would consider a traditional virus. So, I, 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 full disclosure, don't understand all of it, but what I find fascinating is the fact that by leveraging these mRNA vaccines and finally getting approval to use them on, on humans, that opens the door for MR, mRNA applications in other areas, like cancer, uh, creating some type of vaccine for cancer or something that can fight it. Uh, there's mention of HIV. And, uh, I, yeah, and actually, I did see that there's actually a trial already started for an mRNA-based vaccine for HIV. 
So it wasn't in this particular article, but I've actually read that elsewhere. So, yeah. And so the applications of this mRNA, it took a while to get people confident enough to use it in the human body. But now that we're seeing it deployed, I think it's kind of smashing down that wall. And a lot of times when you see something like that happen, that wall gets smashed down all of a sudden for the, especially the, in the near term after that, you can see an incredible amount of development in those areas. Eventually you'll find another wall that you've got to get through and it might take some time to do that. But I think we're just at the precipice of something pretty cool as far as uh, human health goes because of the, the necessity of examining these other methodologies to, to keep uh, people safe from COVID. So pretty exciting to see what applications can come from that. Absolutely. I think uh, the, the pace of that adoption of mRNA, uh, I think the, the fact that once you have that RNA, that mRNA capability to adapt it now is going to be very, very quick for a lot of these scientists. And uh, you know, I applaud all of the research that's gone into place to get us to this point. Um, I can't remember the lady's name, but she was uh, the pioneer of mRNA. And, uh, you know, she spent, you know, 25 years of her career developing this technology. And uh, to see it come to fruition, uh, I think, must be a, an extremely rewarding thing for, for any scientist to kind of see all of their hard work and effort and vision come to fruition. So, Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I'm fortunate enough that I get my... Uh, my AstraZeneca jab later today, um, 6 p.m. So you uh, you lucked out and got yours today. Uh, mine was uh, I was going to be going tomorrow, but I ended up having a discussion tomorrow that I needed to take place, so I had to rebook mine for next week. So yeah, so I mean, uh, wishing everyone to stay healthy. I, I think as far as the uh, the newsletter goes, was there anything else you wanted to touch on today, or is um, no, I think we can wrap it up for today. Uh, again, thanks for Michael. Uh, again, we wish him all the best of health and hopefully he's doing well. Um, he's uh, looking like he's got some new lab equipment, so he'll probably be talking about some BCDR uh, related uh, stuff. Uh, so hopefully we can have him on to just uh, maybe chat about some of that experience uh, in one of the upcoming podcasts. Uh, again, uh, if you want to reach us, you can reach us on Twitter at notes from M White. Uh, or uh, I'm at Canmore Man on Twitter, and Josh, you are uh, at under or at Josh underscore Wagman on Twitter. Perfect. So with that, we'll wrap up episode 13. It, it wasn't as unlucky as I thought, and hopefully, we'll uh, talk to everybody next week, and we'll have another edition of uh, the podcast. Thanks again Sounds to Josh, good. and we'll sign off. Thanks, Peter. Feel well, Mike. Thank you.